Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There were certain people in let's say the network who I didn't think necessarily understood comedy. The level of network interference. The network just making these insane decisions. Poor decisions at a network level. I blame top leadership at a network level. What the network really wanted was to create a machine. When the network says jump, I say how high. This is the new directive from the network. Someone from the network went, oh, we don't want it to be a scary thing. The network would say, here's what we're going to do, blah, blah, blah. The network said things like, no, you can't do that. Finding a constant battle with the network. I hadn't met many network people before. Someone from the network. The network executives. Notes from network. Network bullshit. The network. Network. The 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 network. I am Gary, and my job at the time was uh, Director of Programming for TV3. Yeah, my name's Jeff Stephen, and I was Head of uh, Commission Programs for TV3. Everyone always blames the network, which, for me, could be a good thing. Hi, I'm Jeff Houtman, and 25 years ago, I suffered a huge failure. I created the worst sitcom ever made. But in this episode... I thought I'd talk to the people in charge at the network at the time to hear their side of the story and to see if I can perhaps pass on some of the blame. And also, to get to the bottom of some burning questions that I've harboured ever since that time. Things like, was Belinda Todd cast in the title role of Melody because she was on retainer to TV3 and they just needed to give her something to do. No, it would not have had any influence whatsoever in her getting the role or not. It's not the way that we looked at things. We always looked to get the right people. And I believe Belinda had found out about it and she really wanted to audition for the role. And my recollection is we let her do it and she just shot. And another question. What were the reasons behind putting us in a tiny studio in TV3's garage? Ends on here, they give you some cash and you've got to put in a lot of other cash and kind and things. And one of the things, if you're TVNZ, you had Avalon Studios. So you could say, look, we'll put in Avalon Studios. Here's Avalon. Uh, if you're TV3, you say, look, we've got a broom cupboard. We can sit in the broom cupboard. I think we would have done anything to help the budget so that as much money went into things like scripts and writing and, and good cast as it did being spent on a studio. That's what we could contribute um, because it was a network that recently had been bankrupt and, you know, didn't have a lot of cash. But at least uh, the engine on their funding paid for the lighting rig, so TV3 ended up with a lighting rig at the end of it that we could do lots of other shows out of. And then perhaps the biggest question of all, why did they even choose Melody Rules in the first place? It was designed to be kind of a PG program, you know, nothing to adult, which gave me the greatest flexibility in terms of scheduling it. TV3 was aiming for uh, 18 to 49, household shoppers with kids, females, you know, you thought this is the commercial world of television. When you pick a show, you've got to pick it so that you know that you've got other shows on the schedule throughout the day and night 
that would resonate with those promos. And we did. We had a pretty strong female and household chopper block. And I knew that, you know, this show could be promoted to all of those people. Now, the problem is we didn't know any of this. Melody Rules was the concept chosen basically because it ticked a lot of the broadcaster boxes. What Gary and Jeff are talking about here is the nitty-gritty of television programming. They knew they had a strong female audience, and they knew that they had shows to program it around. But we didn't. We just wanted to make the next Seinfeld. For them, success was about making a show that would appeal to their female base. For us, success was making a show that would change the face of New Zealand television. And having to diplomatically traverse these two ambitions were the producers. I managed to track down one of the producers in the American South, where she now lives. Oh, my God, Melody bloody rules. It sort of almost seems surreal. It doesn't feel like a thing that really happened, you know? It just seems so weird to be talking about it again. This is Ali Duffy, one of the two producers responsible for putting Melody Rules together. The other was Ross Jennings, who sadly passed away a few years ago. And I don't want you to get the wrong idea about Ross. Yes, he may have produced the worst sitcom ever made, but he also created some of New Zealand's most loved and successful television shows, shows that are still being made to this day. He was a man liked by everyone, and on Melody Rules, Ali was at his right hand. So I talked to her about the ins and outs of working with the network. Well, Ross and I would meet with the network regularly. And they would say, well, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I mean, I hate to throw Ross on the bus, you know, he's no longer around. But I loved Ross and he was wonderful. But I think it would probably be true to say that he was conflict averse. The network would say, here's what we're going to do, blah, blah, blah. And Ross would say, great idea. And I'd be sitting there thinking, (laughs) One of the things I've always wondered is why Melody was chosen. And obviously because it's like a family-based sitcom. But, like, was that always the plan? I would think that it was a judgment call based on criteria that weren't particularly valid, to be honest, you know. And I will just say at this point that numerous times throughout my whole tenure at Melody Rules, I would find myself horrified and bewildered and thinking, how could they do that? How could they make that choice? I knew that the intention was absolutely there But I was a little puzzled by the methodology. Mm. I do remember that vividly. There was some reluctance in embracing US philosophies when it came to producing television. What we were trying to do was introduce a skill set. We never wanted to lose the Kiwi attitude, but we wanted people to start thinking that success was not a bad word, that if we can produce 26 episodes a year, why not? As you've probably picked up, this idea of embracing US philosophies has been a controversial one throughout this series and a decision many questioned. Making a sitcom in this style is risky business, especially in a country where it's never been tried in that way or on that scale before. So why were those in charge at TV3 so willing to face that risk of failure? It really came from us as a network wanting to do things that were different, wanting to do things that pushed the envelope. 
there's an opportunity to use free money, which is entered on air, to help turn this network around because one thing it needs is local productions because that's your point of difference. Nothing like that has ever really been done before in New Zealand. And so that was a huge part of the attraction uh, to me, was to give it a try and create a sitcom. And I felt it was something that we needed to at least give it a go and see, see what happens. What surprised me in talking to Gary and Jeff, and what is very much to their credit, is that they were the ones who came up with the concept of a local sitcom in the first place. This whole process was started by their enthusiasm for creating the great New Zealand sitcom. But it flopped. Everyone hated it, and not many people watched it. Eventually, and a lot quicker than we'd all hoped, it had to be moved from its primetime slot. It wasn't doing the numbers that we were hoping it was going to do there. Jeff Stephen. I don't know what was up against it on TV1 and TV2. I'm sure they would have put you know, something that was pretty strong against it. TVNZ back then, as we were making steps forward in the ratings and everything. Gary Brown. Anything new that we came out with that they kind of felt threatened by, they would always throw a Mr Bean or a Crocodile Hunter, and literally week after week after week... So I think New Zealand on Air, you know, they're probably the ones that uh, pulled out of it in the end. New Zealand on Air, we're getting a lot of criticism about having funded Melody Rules. I know that the ratings did soften a little. Wasn't it going to be given a completely different time slot? Does that ring a bell with you? Yeah, yeah. Like earlier, but it still had to be in prime time because it was public funding, right? This was not a show for prime time. I don't know why people were talking about it as being prime time, but you speak to a Kiwi audience at 7.30 with this show, you're going to get laughed at. Not with, at. And that's what happened. So now we're at five, and it's like, well, now you can't, you know, you can't be drinking because our audience is eight and nine. It's like, oh, my God. So who are we? I think they did what's called, they stripped it or something. They just showed them one after the other or something, and then that was their obligation done. What I suspect... I would have done that for was basically to burn it off, right? Because um, if no more were being funded, then it really doesn't have any further value in a prime time slot sandwiched between other shows and getting a promotional base. What was it like for you when the bad reviews started, you know, coming in? Oh, it was absolutely horrendous. It was mortifying in the extreme, you know. Producer Ellie Duffy. I felt personally absolutely devastated, but I also felt incredibly angry because I felt that it was really absolutely obvious what was going wrong, and it was all easily remedied. There was just not the slightest inkling of possibility that anything would be changed because we were getting terrible, terrible reviews. And I don't understand that. We should have stopped and regrouped. We absolutely should have had the courage to take a good hard look at, at what was being done and change direction a little bit. And, and I, I think people would have respected that. I think everybody would have respected that. I wasn't, as I say, party to every conversation between Jeff Stephen and Ross Jennings by any means. So I think they just sometimes they would, and this is pretty insulting thing for me to say, but I'm going to say I think they just took the easy path sometimes, you know. We should have changed the show. 
But we continued as normal because the network had their measures of success and their measures were different to ours. We were being hammered by reviewers and audiences, but what I've now found out is Gary and Jeff didn't think it was a failure. And even to this day, they still don't. Why should it be seen as a failure when we got a, we got scripts, we got a pilot, we got a good cast, we put it to air, it rated in the demographics? I don't think that's a failure. That's called success right there. The success, I think, is that um, we, first at the beginning we mentored with an overseas expert who has got good credentials. I don't think there's any debate of that. The creative team, they learn something. Um, they can you learn just as much from so-called failure as you do from success. Outside shoppers with kids that did reasonably well, that you know created revenue for the network. Who says it's a failure? I'd say it probably was a failure, yeah. But it was a failure in the sense that it did not achieve what it set out to be, which was the great New Zealand sitcom. Well, I haven't seen every sitcom ever made. Um, I'd be surprised if there was a worse one. <laughs> I have to agree with Ali's honesty. It was a failure and it was terrible. And the effect of its failure in New Zealand was instantaneous and long-reaching. John Bridges and Jeremy Corbett were working comedians in the industry at the time. I talked to them to see what Melody Rules and its critical drubbing actually meant for comedy on New Zealand TV. It was pretty quickly established that it was not a great result and wasn't what we were looking for and um, <laughs> fingers were pointed. I think it probably killed comedy commissions for a little while in this country while people got over the fear. The f- I think the fear was so strong that no one made anything. It's dissipated, but certainly when you make something that's not doesn't turn out as well as you think and is perhaps not that good, I think people do start going, oh, my God, please don't say we're the next Melody Rules. The trouble was we were trying to get good comedy TV on New Zealand TV back again after... The great time we'd had during the 70s and 80s with McFarlane Gadsby and John Clark. We were looking for the thing that was going to be as great. Why can't we be, do Billy T? What, why can't we do that again? And when something wasn't that, then everyone just went, oh, we can't do comedy, we're useless. And I think Melody Rules copped a lot of that. The problem was, we just, everyone said, we don't make, we can't make sitcoms. That's it, and won't even try it. Locked it away, and it was a corner of TV you couldn't go into, which is a shame because. I've made my share of bad TV, and you learn things from it. Yeah. And uh, second time, next time around, you're you're better. And I, I wish we'd done that instead of just being shell shocked and saying we're not going there again. That's right, Melody killed comedy, and especially the sitcom in this country for at least a decade after. No broadcaster wanted to back it, and no audience wanted to watch it. A familiar and often heard phrase was, "New Zealanders just can't do comedy." Ever since, Melody Rules has been known as the paragon of failure. It has set the bar and epitomised what failure in this country means. The fact that it wasn't good enough uh, for the job it was doing at the time. This is Dr Tricia Dunleavy from Wellington's Victoria University. And very voluminous, you know, 40 episodes aired between uh, 94 and 95. These are all reasons why we remember it and why it it failed in a very public and high-profile way. You know, I don't have any great emotional interest in Melody Rules. It was just one of the shows we did, as I keep saying. But there seems to be this sort of people hang on to it and, you know, without any objective analysis or looking at it or whatever. 
and say, oh, that's, you know, that's a sort of a benchmark. Um, I think it's pushing it to an, a level that it even doesn't deserve to be pushed to. Typical New Zealand, right? So New Zealand, rather than celebrate the attempt, rather than celebrate that we gave it a go, unfortunately people just like to mock it and dismiss it as, well, that was the worst thing ever done on New Zealand television. I somehow doubt that. You know, I'm actually very proud of Melody Rules. I'm proud of the fact that we actually gave it a go because don't you think we knew that people would come out and be haters before we even started? I know this Kiwi attitude that Gary is talking about all too well. And it's that attitude that meant I had to be a little more persuasive than usual to get Ali to even take part in this podcast. I was really reluctant to do this. I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. There, is, there can be an unbelievable snarkiness in New Zealanders that I've really noticed since I left New Zealand. And I didn't want to be part of something snarky and sarcastic. The strange thing that sort of raises its flag from the sort of the, uh, you know, the swamp of New Zealand culture, television culture, this Melody Rules flag every now and again gets waved. So you have to sort of go back and dredge, what was all that about? And particularly, more importantly, what's it all about now? With what's going on in the country and and, in our culture? It seems we have this sort of need to mine the past. In the United States, they come out with about... 30 to 40 new sitcoms every single year, and they're lucky if two make it past season one. Right? The chances of striking gold are so rare. New Zealand was never given that opportunity, and it's kind of sad because the sitcom, as much as the you know the soap or the drama or the reality shows, should play a part in any network schedule. I'm against, very much against that sort of elitism, cultural elitism, where people sit down and go, oh, it's terrible, this happened, that means that happened. Bullshit. You know, good people will come out and struggle and make good shows, and they'll also have some bad shows and some indifferent shows on that process. But they learn, and, you know, hopefully the culture and the, the production industry learns from those successes, the failures and the mediocre stuff. It's sad that people criticise TV3 for trying something that really hadn't been done before, putting everything into it, promoting it, giving it a good time slot, supporting it. It's sad. It's sad people should be celebrating. Maybe celebrating is too big a word, but Gary and Jeff are in some ways right. I think I've held on to the failure for too long. For these guys, it was part of their working life. They were part of creating shows, successes, failures, every day. Looking at it now, maybe I should have got up, dusted off my Macintosh Classic and got back to it. Because it's clear that their definition of success and my definition of success were wildly different. They were happy to give some writers and producers a chance to learn, to try something new, and to get a lighting rig for the TV3 studio. I wanted to create the great New Zealand sitcom. I wanted the country to laugh and the critics to laud me. Talking to Gary and Jeff, I've now realised that the notion of success is malleable. Me and the other writers wanted it to be great, straight out of the gate. But Gary and Jeff were happy to take the small wins. In other words, if you don't want to fail, then first of all, everyone has to be on board with what success actually means for that project. 
and there'll always be some success and failure, because even if nothing works the first time, at least you've learnt what doesn't work. So for us, the biggest failure might not have been Melody Rules. Maybe our biggest failure was giving up completely and not trying to make another sitcom. And as I learned talking to Ali, throughout the Melody Rules process, none of us, the network, or the writers, or the producers, were ever on the same page. Right from the beginning. Remember in the first episode when we learned about the giardia everyone got from the dirty water cooler? Oh, my dear. I actually feel that everybody was sold a puff on that because I got Giardia very badly indeed. And what I know is that that wasn't where we got it. What? This is a twist? Well, I'm... Yes, I know. I'm wondering if an alternate story was presented to save the reputation of certain people. Because my understanding, and I'm very, very clear about this, is that a certain producer's very close relative made salads for lunch. And they lived in a rural part of the country. And the water supply at their home was polluted with giardia. And that's where we all got it. Oh, my... I wish you could see my gobsmacked face right now. Yes, and I'm thinking now that that may not have been the party line. No, no, that was... What I heard was the um, problem with the water cooler at the convention centre. Um, uh, if you're not feeling well, um, poo, poo in a little jar and, and take it to your doctor. No, I think the convention centre was thrown under the bus, so to speak. Wow. This is... This is shocking. I'm shocked. Coming up on the final episode of the worst sitcom ever made. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Honestly, you have been carrying this monkey on your back for years, Jeff, and the only person who sees it is you. The worst sitcom ever made is produced for RNZ by the Download Concept and Glynis Stewart. The studio engineer was Jeremy Veal. The coordinating producer for RNZ is Adam McCauley and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. If you want to catch up on this or other episodes of the worst sitcom ever made, go to the podcast page at RNZ or you can find it on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Radio Public and Google Play. And while you're there, you can check out other RNZ podcasts like Bang. The worst sitcom ever made is presented by me, Jeff Halpern. 